the anatomy of the thoracic region. You would have already done heart, so today I'm going to continue with lung and pleura and everything else. We're going to talk a little bit about embryology later. Okay, so it's that time of the afternoon when you're probably a little bit restless. Some, well, most of you might have gotten to walk around a little bit, improve circulation. So I'm going to get right on it and hopefully. So I have this question here. I don't know if this is going to work. 73-year-old male. Let's see how awake you are. Brought to the emergency room with a chief complaint. Redness. It's not working. All right. Not so sure what happened there. All right. We'll, we'll read an answer anyhow. So around the site of a recent chest tube, insertion in the fifth intercostal space, mid-axillary line on the right. So that's where the pain and redness is occurring. On physical exam, he's febrile, heart rate of 88, blood pressure 140, respiratory rate 18. Now, the affected area is swollen and warm to touch with darkening of the edges of the insertion site. So you want to know which lymph nodes would first drain this infected region. So if our clicker is not working, that's okay. I just want to know by a raise of hand, how many of you determine that it is your option A? Raise of hand, option A. It's okay if you don't know right now because we're going to be learning about it. Option A. You just did lymphatics, so maybe you might suspect where it might be. Option B, anybody? No? Option C, we have a couple, right? So that's your right bronchomediastinal trunk. What about option D? And option E, thoracic duct, not so sure. That's okay. So we're going to work on this. All right. So we're looking at a very important skeletal structure, the thorax. We're looking at the thoracic cage. Now, you've done heart already, but what we're going to talk about would be a little bit of all of the structures that are found in this region, protected by this bony structure. So, the thoracic cage, as we can see here, is made up of all of your ribs, so right and left sides, laterally, anterolaterally, posteriorly, you'll find your vertebral column, and anteriorly, sternum. Now, this cage as you can see, it protects all of the organs found within the thoracic cavity. So it envelops or encircles the thoracic cavity. The cavity itself is going to be lined by your parietal pleura. So that's a simple squamous epithelial layer that lines that internal line part of the thoracic cage. Now, between the ribs would be your intercostal muscles, and they would assist in participating in your breathing. So between these, your intercostal muscles, your endothoracic fascia, and then the innermost lining will be your parietal pleura. So those are the layers that we can consider. What I want you to see here, though, is that there is an inlet, or a superior thoracic aperture, and there's an outlet to that cavity. So structures needing to leave the neck, for example, if you think of your neurovascular structures that descend into the thorax, would enter the thorax via this aperture, your superior thoracic aperture. 
Also, structures that leave the thorax or need to enter the thorax from the upper limb would also exit or enter through this aperture. So keep in mind, you've looked at cardiovascular, you probably would have spoken about your subclavian vein, right, subclavian artery. These would enter and leave the thorax at this region. Or if we think of the vagus and your carotids that need to get into the neck would also be exiting here. So these are just some of the structures that are at this location. When does this become very important for us? In the event, for example, we're talking here about um, pulmonary system. However, if you were to consider tumors in this area and the structures that can be compressed as they exit or enter this aperture. So you have veins, you have arteries, we also have trachea, and in the event that the lung, the, the top of the lung, the cupola, or the apex of the lung becomes compromised, there might be a tumor there that can also compress these structures. So keep in mind, because we'll be talking a little bit later about thoracic outlet syndrome, and this is the region that we're going to be considering. Okay? So it's really an inlet, but we call it thoracic outlet syndrome. So keep this in mind. Also, the boundaries are important because when we look later at the diaphragm and its insertion and origin, we're going to talk a little bit about the boundaries of the thorax, the thorax as well. Okay, so in this thoracic cage, we're looking here then at, again, the aperture and structures that may become compressed in the event that there is any kind of swelling or increase in size or um, if you think of a hematoma, for example, in this region, the structures that may become compressed. In addition, I want you to picture in here the clavicle. The clavicle runs from the acromion process towards the manubrium of the sternum. So it crosses over this first rib on its way to the sternum. So we're creating other little openings for structures to become compressed, if we think of nerves and so, that are passing either below or above. Or in the event that we start inserting muscles, this is what's going to happen. So the scalene muscles, anterior, anterior and middle scalene, has brachial plexus and your subclavian vein passing between them. That's what you call your scalene gap or your scalene triangle. So any additional structures, as we're seeing in this case, there's an additional rib here, it's a cervical rib, that now would compromise any structures passing between this scalene gap. So there are other little openings that we refer to as, one is with the costoclavicular, the name tells you exactly what it is, between rib and clavicle. So your first rib and clavicle has, between this region, you'll find your subclavian vein and artery passing between there as well as your brachial plexus. So similarly, if there is an additional rib and your nerves ought to pass over that additional rib, then we notice the lower part of your brachial plexus what nerves, nerve roots might be affected there? CAT1, nice. So CAT1, lower part of the brachial plexus needing to pass over this region might be affected. So the areas innervated by these nerves might be affected as well. So that's when a person comes in with thoracic outlet syndrome, you may suspect the injury from anywhere in the origin along its course to its target. A little bit about the muscles of respiration. So we have muscles that are accessory muscles or principal muscles of respiration. Mostly the diaphragm, sorry, mostly the diaphragm and your intercostal muscles. Those are the principal muscles of respiration. 
But we do have the accessory ones that you pull in, for example, when someone has some kind of respiratory distress. Think of an asthmatic in respiratory distress. Their position, the orthopneic position that they assume is to help to expand the thorax so we can have ex um, the lung volume increasing. So these accessory muscles, if we notice, they generally act on the upper limb. If you think of your pectoralis major or the latissimus dorsi or serratus anterior, all of these muscles have some kind of insertion on the ribs. So in the event that a person in respiratory crisis needs to access these muscles, they tend to fix the upper limb first so that the ribs will be the ones that are moving, okay? So keep this in mind, mobilization of your accessory muscles of respiration. These muscles are associated with the upper limb but have insertions on ribs. So the principal function of these muscles in terms of your diaphragm, mostly for inspiration, whereas your external, your external intercostals participate in your inspiration. All right, so with regards to the thoracic cavity, so many things can go wrong with the thoracic cage in general. If you think of someone going through trauma, fractures of the rib, fractured ribs may penetrate the lung tissue, first, for, sorry, your pleural cavity, your parietal pleural, and then enter pleural cavity and progress or pro proceed to injure the lung. So tumors as well in this area can compress the lung, we may have, in the event that there's a punctured um, parietal pleura, we may find air entering the cavity, or there may be ruptured vessels that cause blood to collect in the cavity. So all of the structures that are related to the thoracic cage or thoracic wall, we have to consider if someone presents with pain or some kind of discomfort in the thoracic region based on the history, what it is we can think of that might be the problem. So this thoracic cavity is entirely different then to the pleural cavity, okay? So the, ca the, the thoracic cavity is what we saw earlier as the entire region that housed the organs that fit inside of it. The pleural cavity, however, would be that pleural or that membrane I mentioned earlier is made up of simple squamous epithelium that lines the internal aspect of the thoracic cavity but also continues onto the organ itself. So there's, there are two layers to this lining. The part of it that lines the parietal or the body wall would be the parietal pleura, and the part that lines the organ itself would be a visceral pleura. So the pleural cavity would be between these two layers, your visceral and your parietal. You'd have seen the same thing when you looked at the heart. There was a, there was a visceral portion and a parietal portion. The visceral portion between the two would be your, ca your cavity, your pleural cavity. So these two linings, they eventually meet at the root of the lung. So your question probably is then, where is the root of the lung? The root of the lung is that part that has all of the structures that are entering and leaving the lung. So the structures that enter the lung would be the root structures. So you have the trachea, which would have bifurcated into your primary bronchus. You'll have your pulmonary artery, okay? All of these and pulmonary veins exiting together with some lymphatics, these are found at this root region. If, however, you would have removed the lung and looking at that medial aspect of it, then you're looking into the hilum of the lung itself. So the root structures would be all of these that I just mentioned. 
So we can see here where our parietal pleura, if you follow the blue line, met with your visceral pleura at that point. Okay, so it's going to meet right here. Also, I want you to consider here that there are different parts of that parietal pleura, and we can follow it. The parietal pleura has an apical portion, which we call the cupula or the cervical region. It has a costal portion, which would be lateral, anterior, and posterior. Think of the surfaces of the lung as it touches on the anterior, lateral, and posterior aspects of the, the ribs. So that's your costal portions. The part of it that is in, to, in contact with the diaphragm, or that sits on the diaphragm, that would be your diaphragmatic portion. And the mediastinal portion would be facing the middle of the thoracic cavity and all the structures that are in there, in contact with the heart, for example. So these four layers, these four parts to the, the parietal pleural, receive all of their blood supply and innovation from your intercostal nerves and arteries. Think of it in all contact with it here. So any kind of pain, inflammation, for example, that extends to this parietal pleura, the type of pain that this person will have would be of the somatic kind. They would be able to pinpoint this is where the pain is, and that's because they're innervated by somatic nerves. The visceral pleura, however, doesn't have any pain fibers, so you may not be able to determine where the pain is in this individual. So you must be able to distinguish these cavities. Also, as we looked at the, I'll go back to that slide, just let's go back to the slide. As we can see here, the visceral pleura is a little bit higher or internal to your parietal pleura. So when we are looking for landmarks of the visceral and parietal pleura, we note that the visceral pleura tends to be a little bit internal or higher to where your parietal pleura is. So that's where I'm coming on to this slide. When you're looking for your surface landmarks of the pleura, and we can trace it, we're gonna use this anterior portion here. So we can see the upper lobe, the middle, and inferior lobe of the lungs, where you're expecting the visceral pleura of the lung to end at about this part here. Whereas this lightly shaded area that continues lower into the recesses that would be the continuation of your parietal pleura. And they look, for example, on the sides where both tend to be directly over each other. So they're very closely opposed in these areas. However, areas where, for example, when the lung expands, it can continue into these recesses. So we call them costal diaphragmatic recesses because that's where your costal pleura coincides with your diaphragmatic pleura, so we call it the costodiaphragmatic recess. Okay, so all the names make sense. Posteriorly, we can see then that something sim it's similar it happens similarly. The lower portion would be our parietal pleura, costodiaphragmatic again. So this is the deepest part of it, and then this would be where your visceral pleura ends. So in terms of the vertebral levels, we'll see that two ribs down would be where your parietal pleura ends depending on if you're looking at the mid-clavicular line, your mid-axillary, or your paravertebral region. And this becomes important in the event that you have to do some kind of procedure in that region. Based on the amount of fluid that you suspect is collected, you'll be able to determine at which vertebral level would be the best. Should I go mid-axillary, should I go paravertebral, or should I go your mid-clavicular line? Okay, so this 
radiograph here, it's a normal radiograph, radiograph of the chest that shows just where your recesses occur. So your costodiaphragmatic recess would be just at this point. There's another one referred to as the costomediastinal. It's a little bit difficult to appreciate in this view, but that would be where the anterior costal pleura, your parietal pleura, meets the mediastinum region of the parietal per visceral peritoneum. Okay? So in this case, it's just under, just below the sternum, your costal mediastinal recess is going to be. Okay? All right, so this, this slide shows here your costal diaphragmatic. This one gives you a better idea of where your costal mediastinal would be. So these, this area here would be your costal part of the parietal pleura. Your mediastinal is going to be just at this point. So just below where costal meet mediastinal would be your costal mediastinal recess. So you have one on either side. So when you're looking for it, this is the best view you can use. All right, so to move on to the lung, when you talk about the lung, first you must be able to identify the different borders so you could name it correctly. So you're either looking at the costal surface or the mediastinal surface or the diaphragmatic surface based on what, um, what part of the, the, the pleura you're looking at, your, your visceral pleura. So the surfaces, of course, your diaphragmatic surface would be sitting on the diaphragm. It, more or less coincides with what you would have spoken about in terms of your visceral, your parietal pleura. But the lung itself have these surfaces as well. So there's a diaphragmatic, a costal, and a mediastinal surface. These borders then, you'll be able to determine which parts of the pleura would have met to form the borders. So your inferior border, for example, you can see your inferior border would be where your costal part of the visceral pleural met with your diaphragmatic, and it goes all the way around from costal to mediastinal. So this would be all your inferior border. Same, your anterior border would be where your mediastinal meets the anterior part of your costal, and your posterior, where the posterior part of the costal met your mediastinal. So between your anterior and posterior borders of the lung would be where you'll find your mediastinal surface, which becomes very important because your mediastinal surface now has all of the, the structures that I mentioned earlier, your root structures. So you're looking at the hilum of the lung here with all the root structures entering and leaving that region there. Now, I did not have, it's not included here, but just consider a couple lymph nodes are stuck right in between your vessels. Right? So those would be your pulmonary lymph nodes that are found just at the root of the lung. So your pulmonary lymph nodes are going to be here. So these surfaces um, are very important when you're considering here then the relationship of mediastinal structures with the lung. Because as we can see, they differ if you're looking at the right lung versus your left lung. So we may ask you, for example, well, on which one of these lungs would you find the azygous arch? And then you have to remember the azygous, the azygous. Where is it going? Where is it coming from? Anybody knows? Where's the azygous vein draining? It drains into the superior vena cava. What is it collect? Where is it collecting blood from? Posterior intercostal veins, right? So all of these on the left side 
would drain into your hemizygous and accessory, then they drain into your azygous, which is on the right side, superior vena cava is on the right side. So we can see here, for example, the azygous vein as it arches over your right primary bronchus before it joins superior vena cava. So that's a little arch you'll see. Now we know we have a bigger arch on the left side. So that's the arch of the aorta. So you see this very nice prominent depression in the left lung, you know for sure this is the arch of your aorta. Other structures that we can see that are in the mediastinum, and we're gonna talk about mediastinum, but significant ones that we could talk about here, the esophagus, for example, also has a little surface marking on each lung together with the, the heart. So there's a cardiac notch here, for example, and a little bit on the, left side, on the right side. So these are important markings that you'll see to help you determine. So you probably don't even have to see the anterior surface of the lung if you're looking at the mediastinum. If you're looking at the, the mediastinal surface of the lung or your hilum, just looking for these arches, you'll be able to determine if this is right or if this is left. Okay? So this is something additional that you can armor yourself with. Okay? All right. Okay. So you're, the person came to you and you wanted to listen to the lung, and you have to remember then where each of the lobes of the lung, where they project onto the chest wall. Because you're doing anatomy now and you may not get to review anatomy for a little while, right? So your surface markings become a little bit important, especially if you're trying to figure out, does this person have an upper lobe pneumonia or is it a middle, right? Or is it a lower if you're looking at the right or the left side? So these surface markings are very important. So your right lung has three lobes, superior, middle, and inferior. But what we can see from the anterior aspect, it looks as if there's not much to the superior lobe, or the inferior lobe rather, of the right lung, except that posteriorly, that's where most of it would be. So on auscultation, you might want to auscultate more with the posterior if you suspect it's a posterior or lower lobe infection in this individual. So what landmark should we look for? We should be able to find then, we're gonna follow the back from the back first, you should be able to trace your fourth thoracic vertebral region, okay? It's because you're gonna follow that rib, your rib number six locates, is found at that region. So it follow it anteriorly and it takes you all the way along here. So if you follow rib number six, it takes you all the way to the anterior aspect and you'll be able to determine your superior lobe from your inferior lobe. However, your right lung now has a middle lobe, so you need another landmark to delimit or demarcate your middle lobe and that's where your fourth rib comes in, okay? So if you trace your fourth rib horizontally, you would have delimited superior lobe from middle lobe and then posteriorly, below you have all of your inferior lobe, okay? So these landmarks, you follow them, very important in demarcating all of your lobes during auscultation. So for your left lobe, you're gonna do the same thing as you would have on the right, except that now we have no middle lobe. This little structure here, this little part of the left lung, what's it called? 
the lingula. So that would have been the equivalent of the middle lobe on the, on the, right, on the left lung. All right? So there's no middle lobe, but we know that now the superior lobe would extend all the way from around your T4 vertebrae where you'll find your very close to where your sixth rib occurs, and you follow it anteriorly all the way down, and you would have delimited your superior lobe from your inferior lobe. All right. So we've auscultated that individual, and we, we hear a very rough kind of sound, and we suspect maybe that problem is in the airway, maybe upper part of the bronchial tree or something. All right? So it's not very nice, and you want to figure out, well, how does this bronchial tree divide? How do we figure out where, what we're looking at? So the lung on the right, three main lobes left, two main lobes. So from the trachea divided, and we look at the development of, the, of the, that airway in a little while, the trachea would have bifurcated to give us one main bronchus. But because there are three on the right, two on the left, that main bronchus divides accordingly if you're going to the right or your left. So you get secondary bronchi there. So trachea gives you primary. There's a primary right and a primary left. And then each one would divide to supply each lobe. So they become secondary. And once these divides further, you'll find we have tertiary. And these tertiary are the important ones. So the bronco, they give what we call the bronchopulmonary segments. Each lung has between eight to 10. There's more on the right. So right would have more about 10. Your left would have about eight of these smaller segments. Now, depending on the type of pathology that the person has, you may not need to resect an entire lobe, which we refer to as a lobectomy. You may just need to do a small segment, and that's where your bronchopulmonary segments come in, because each of these smaller bronchioles will have with them blood supply and, and drainage as well. So you can resect that small segment of the lung without interfering with the rest of the lung. So clinically, if you wanted to resect a part of the lung, if it's a small portion, you can resect one or a couple of these smaller segments without interfering with the general architecture or anatomy of the lung. So this shows you here all of these various segments. It would be nice to know a couple of the names of the lobes, and it's very easy. So if you're looking at your right lung, for example, you note your, where your medial portion is, your diaphragmatic and your lateral, and then you just name it accordingly. So if it's, this is the referred, the diaphragmatic portion is referred to the base of the lung, whereas the cervical region is referred to as the apical aspects. So depending on which lobe it comes from, then you're going to give it a name. So there's an apical segment one, which, and your anterior segment, which belongs, and your posterior segment, which all belongs to your apical region. But if in your middle region you may have um, your medial portion of the anterior of your right lung, right? So the names are just based on where on the lung or which lobe of the lung this, these segments are located. So how does the lung get its blood supply? It's dual. Agreed? There's dual blood supply to the lung. Nobody's saying anything. You agree, right? So we have your venous, which would be from your pulmonary artery. That goes to the lung as well. And then we have your arterial portion. 
So the blood supply to the lung, your bronchial arteries are the ones that will supply that arterial blood to the lung because your pulmonary artery would be carrying your deoxygenated blood. So the oxygenated blood that goes to the lung comes from your bronchial arteries. And these are branches of directly off your aorta, if you're on the left, or off your, bronch your bronchial arteries, if you're, sorry, your intercostals, if you're on the right. Okay? So if you're on the left, your bronchial arteries come directly off the aorta. In terms of the pulmonary, the pulmonary would bring into the lung your deoxygenated blood. It is thought that your deoxygenated or that pulmonary artery, the branches of it, generally you find them between the segments in the lung. So the segments that we just spoke about, you'll find them between the segments. Whereas you'll find branches of the bronchial artery following with the bronchus. So we mentioned earlier that the lung has no pain fibers. All right? So what in the lung then, why, why does it need innovation? What do we need to innovate in the lung if it doesn't have any pain fibers? Oh, you can pack up and go home because the lung has no lungs, the lung has no nerves, right? But we need these fibers here because the bronchi, which travel into the lung, also has within them what? You've done the anatomy of the respiratory system already. True? Sorry, the histo. You haven't done histo of the respiratory system yet? All right, so I'm going to sell it. <laughs> okay, so in the bronchus, when you look at the respiratory system, we know air has to go in, air comes back out. But in the event that you have inflammation occurring in there, you also need something to give you an idea of what's going on. Isn't that right? Or if foreign objects get into the airway, there must be some way that you ought to be notified. And that's where some of your nerves come in. So there are glands that produce mucus. Imagine you have a cold and you cough up. Sometimes the mucus is clear. It might be greenish, yellowish in color. It might be bloody, depending on what you're looking at. All right? So there's mucus that needs to be produced, as well as there are, um, if we looked at your reflexes, we also require that the, uh, the area be innovated so that you can respond in the event that there is an obstruction. Also, there are smooth muscles in there. Think of the bronchioles. Asthmatics have hyperactive airways because of the musculature in the bronchioles. Right? So these also need their innovation. So that's where your innovation comes in. So the vagus would bring in its parasympathetic fibers and it's going to innovate the bronchus, it's going to innovate the smooth muscle in the region, and it also is going to innovate the glands in that area. And from your sympathetics, you're going to get the reverse because you need something to temper, to temper the parasympathetic system. So the sympathetics would do the opposite in that case. Okay? So consider if you're in a rush or something is chasing you, you need as much air as possible to go through your airway. So your sympathetics would cause bronchodilation and your blood pressure is going to be in the roof. So you're going to need vasoconstriction. All right, so generally, your sympathetics would vasoconstrict. Your parasympathetics may cause the reverse. So you get bronchoconstriction or vasodilation. And in terms of secretion, they're the ones that would be stimulating your glands 
to secrete mucus. Right? So keep that in mind when you're thinking about innovation in this region. So the sympathetics would come from your cardiopulmonary, that plexus, cardiopulmonary plexus, um, T1 to T4 location, that would bring in your sympathetics to that plexus, providing innovation to heart and lung. Oh, this is the same one. Don't ask me how it ended up here. Don't worry with this one. <laughs> All right. All right, so the lymphatic drainage to this area, we know now that we expect inflammatory processes to be going on within the lung, and we also expect that the area, if there's excess fluid, that needs to be drained outwards. Now, across the lung, I want to talk a little bit about exudates, because sometimes with certain processes going on in the lung, you may find, or not even in the lung only, it may be in the vascular system, you may find that there's filtration occurring across that thin wall that covers the lung. So we call that an exudate or an effusion. Once there is fluid crossing from your visceral layer into that pleural cavity, we'll find that there is an effusion. So effusions can be of two types. We can have a transudate, or we can have an exudate. So it depends on which one or what is going on, you determine if it's exudate or transudate. Usually your transudate is just like a filtration. So it's probably a process where there's increased blood flow in that area. So the increased pressure causes that to filter across the membrane into your pleural cavity. When you're looking at a, a radiograph, you'll be able to pick up at least around 300 mils because that would start occluding your costodiaphragmatic recess. So you'll be able to see it if there's any fluid there, at least around 300 mils. You'll be able to see it. And if you're auscultating the person, by the time there's about 500 mils, you should be able to pick it up. So you may be able to see it before you can pick it up. All right, about 500 mils. The transudate, however, sorry, your exudate would then be mostly based on some kind of pathology on the lung itself. It might be a cancer, it might be an infection, some pyogenic process going on that produces this pus that collects in this region. So for you to determine what kind we're looking at in terms of your effusion, then you'll have to collect a sample of that and take it to the lab, test it to see if, how much protein is in there, if there are white blood cells in there, and the density to determine if you're looking at a transudate or an exudate. Now, some of that fluid then needs to leave. If there's extra fluid in the interstitial tissue, then some of that fluid, if it's not resorbed at the level of your pleural linings, then it's going to be resorbed via the lymphatic system. So that's where your lymphatics come in, to collect all of that extra fluid, taking it back to your circulatory system. So what we're going to find here is that within the lung itself, all of these lymphatic vessels will be following or traveling with your, your vessels. And from within the lung, they would empty first at the pulmonary nodes, which occur at the root of the lung. So that's your pulmonary nodes there, occurring right at the root of the lung. These pulmonary nodes would then drain, but it drains most of your alveolar tissue. And then 
it continues into your tracheobronchial nose. Your tracheobronchial nose would just be where trachea meets bronchi. If you notice that there are two, so you have the superior and inferior nose. So they may ask you particularly for either superior or, sorry, superior or inferior nodes based on where that inflammation is going on, okay? So from here, they may continue then along your bronchomediastinal and then up your paratracheal, as far as paratracheal. So there may be inf um, inflammatory processes, for example, which may drain into bronchomediastinal trunk or may continue a little bit further up the trachea, paratracheal, and eventually empty into either right or left. If it's on the left, it empties into your thoracic duct. If it's on the right side, it may empty into your right lymphatic duct. So that's basically what happens with regards to drainage. Now, when you're looking at the drainage of structures in the thoracic region, you ought to consider two things. Is that infection on the wall of the organ or is it on the, sorry, is it on the wall of the, the thorax or is it on an organ, a particular organ in the thorax? As we can see here, this takes a different route. When you talk about, for example, a tumor that's occurring in the mammary glands, which of your nodes would that drain into versus if it's the lung? The mammary glands belong to an organ in the thorax or is it a wall structure? It's a body wall structure. So we expect different routes to be taken. So you'll find your mammary glands anywhere into your anterior nodes and then they may go to your central and then your apical and then continue either right lymphatic duct if it's on the right or to your thoracic duct if it's on the left. So that's a different route. So that question that we saw earlier was the injury on the chest wall or was it on the organ? You don't remember? All right, let's go back to it. <laughs> okay, there it is. So it's a 73-year-old male. He's brought to the emergency room, chief complaint, pain, redness, on the site of insertion of the tube. So is that on the lung or is it on the body wall? It's on the body wall. So when you're answering your questions, consider where is it and then continue. So it's on the body wall. So we have either here, subclavian, bronchomediastinal, lymphatic duct, or thoracic. Which one is going to drain it first? Is it subclavian? So from your image, the image that you're looking at, where is your subclavian lymphatic trunk? So your subclavian lymphatic trunk would drain most of your, if you think of your apical nodes, it's right at the top. So we've bypassed everybody else and gotten to the apical nodes. And your apical tend to drain into your right lymphatic duct after that, okay? So in this case, because it's on the wall, it wouldn't drain directly into thoracic duct. It has to go through all of these before going to your thoracic duct. Same thing for your right lymphatic. And in terms of bronchial, bronchomediastinals, all of these would generally take from mediastinal lung before going into your right or left, right duct or thoracic duct. So in this case, we expected your answer to be your subclavian first, and then it goes into the others. Good? Is that clear? No? All right. Let's take it one more time. So remember, 
any inflammatory process has to do with either the wall of the organ, which is the wall of the thorax, or it has to do with the organ itself. We just saw the root that an infection in the lung will take. It goes first to your pulmonary nodes, then to your bronchial nodes, your tracheobronchial nodes, then your paratracheal, and then into your bronchomediastinal. That's the general route that it takes. If the infection is on the body wall, it depends on where on the body wall it is, because the pectoral or the anterior nodes would drain anterior body wall. Your posterior nodes or your subscapular nodes would drain posterior body wall. Is that clear? Right? Generally, your lateral would drain upper limb. From there, pectoral goes to central, central goes to apical. So in this case, the equivalent of the apical would have been your subclavian nose. I just did not tell you that they were there because we expect that you would make the connection. All right? So those go to subclavians. You've done drainage of the upper limb already, lymphatic drainage, right? So you would have known a little bit of it. All right. So your subclavian nodes would collect first and then drain into your thoracic or your right lymphatic duct. Okay? So this summarizes here all of the drainage of the lung itself. So I've not included upper limb because you already know upper limb. And for the body wall itself, you would have talked a little bit about drainage of the body wall when you did your axillary lymph nodes. Okay? So that's the general drainage of the limb. All right, so we're going to come back in a couple minutes and we'll talk a little bit about good old embryology. After fix, after monitor.